David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I will be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And Father, when David wrote those words, I'm sure that he had the, the dual meaning that we're supposed to understand, I believe, from that in mind, that there is a desire to gather as believers with your people in the, what we call a, a physical structure, the house of the Lord, where we can worship you as we've done here this morning, or where we can pray to you as we've done here this morning. Father, we can hear your word as we're about to do here this morning, but I think David had his set, sights set higher than that, as should we here this morning on heaven. Father, on glory, on what it will be like to be with you all of our days and all of our hours, Father, that, that really, in fact, your word says time will be no more, that, that when that day comes, we'll be with the Lord, we'll be with you forever. Father, our hearts long for that now because life is hard, because the world is a mess, because even on our best days, we know we're far short of, of who you've called and created us to be, and it's your grace that carries us along. And Lord, we're, we're leaning on, we're trusting in your grace today to be, in fact, the thing that carries us. Father, that sustains us, that, that lifts our eyes above the waves and the waters to Christ, who is our anchor and our only hope. And Father, that's why we keep coming back to your word every Sunday morning together as well. Father, because your word is life and it's truth and it penetrates our hearts in ways no other, no other words can. And, and I'm just going to ask, Lord, humbly but passionately that you would do that right now, that you would use your word, not mine, yours, to penetrate our hearts to open our eyes, Father, to, to convict us where necessary, to cleanse us where it's appropriate, and Father, to strengthen us for this walk of faith here on earth. But for that to happen, as always, Lord, we need your spirit to come and guide us in truth because your word is the truth. We need your spirit to come and guard us from error because we don't want to leave with more questions than we came. Father, we need your spirit to deliver our souls from the accumulated stuff that is in the way so that for the next little while, Father, we might see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we look at your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we look at your word. And may you be glorified and send us out praising. Father, because for a little while, we didn't just get to come to church, but we got to be in the presence of Jesus and his people. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's go ahead and send the children out for Children's Church. Children's Church is for our five-year-olds up through our second graders. It's their time to go spend some age-appropriate time in the scriptures, and we're going to seek to do the same thing, to spend some meaningful time in the scriptures this morning here as well. So kids are working their way out. Why don't you grab your Bible and turn in it with me. We're headed to Acts chapter 5. Should be no great surprise there. We're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, or maybe you were and just want to be reminded of where we were. We looked at one of the tougher, last Sunday, we looked at one of the tougher stories that's found in the book of Acts. It was a story really of judgment and of, of conviction as God was dealing with uh, sin in his people. And, and while we understand and we talked about the fact that God doesn't always deal with sin quite as emphatically and immediately as he did in that particular story, we certainly saw the desire, the passion God has for purity in the lives and the fellowship of his people it was the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick it up, obviously, in verse 12. That's where we are next. 
And we're going to go all the way down through the end of the chapter, so there's a lot of ground here to cover, but I think it's important to, to look at it all together if that's possible. So if you have your Bible open and ready, we're going to begin reading here in a moment, but to sort of set up where we're going this morning, and before we start reading in verse 12, let me begin by saying to you that I know nothing about Excuse me, I know nothing about the science of fire. In fact, I don't know anything about the science of anything. Science was never my thing in school. But when it comes specifically to, to fire, I don't know anything about the science of it, but I've been fascinated by fire since I was a little boy. And I've learned a lot, for better or worse, through experimentation. And one of the things about fire that I find most interesting or compelling is, is the relationship between wind and open flame. Because it can go a, a couple of very significant different directions. Uh, what I mean by that is you can take an open flame, and these are really weak matches, but I'm going to do my best. And if you, yeah, I'm going to do my best right there. Flame like this isn't very powerful, isn't very strong in and of itself. In fact, all it takes is a, a little breath or a little breeze, and, and you can blow that thing out. That's the relationship there between wind or a breeze and fire. But if you think about it, you can also, while that's sort of one end of the spectrum of the relationship between wind and fire, you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And if you take that same single little flame and set it in the right environment, in the right conditions, next to a pile of kindling, a dry, parched prairie field, a puddle of gasoline on the garage floor, that same little breath, that same little breeze can ignite a raging inferno. It's an interesting relationship. What can extinguish the flame on one hand can ignite the flame, a wildfire on the other. And I mentioned that this morning because where we pick things up here in Acts chapter 5, the wildfire we've been talking about is still burning. That is the wildfire of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's spreading through Jerusalem and, and into the surrounding area. As we've seen from the day of Pentecost forward, back in Acts chapter 2, we know that the gospel, the wildfire of the gospel, has been spreading steadily and at times spectacularly. Certain days, hundreds, if not thousands of people, the Bible tells us, were surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. And what I want you to know is, is that where we pick things up here this morning in verse 12, nothing's changed. In fact, in verses 12 through 16, Luke gives us something of a progress report. He says, okay, now that the story of Ananias and Sapphira is passed, we sort of had a moment to digest and, and contemplate that. He says, let me tell you how things were going right after that. Grab your Bible, look at Acts 5, verse 12, and read down through verse 16, where this is what God's word says. It says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all, that's the church, with one accord in Solomon's portico. That was sort of an extension of the temple complex where it was common for people to gather and meet for all sorts of different purposes. It says, the church was gathered with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest, that would be the rest of the Jews, dared associate with them certain Jews anyway. However, the people held them in high esteem. And I think what we're simply supposed to take away from those couple of verses is the fact that whether people agreed with the, with the believers or not, whether people belonged to the church or they didn't, everyone in Jerusalem had an opinion and a strong one. We're, we're with them, we're against them, we like them, but we haven't taken that step of joining them yet. There's all sorts of opinions. They're very strong. It continues verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. 
Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So again, simply put, what I'm saying to you this morning is the wildfire was still burning. The gospel of Jesus Christ was still on the move. And remember, as I said a moment ago, this came immediately on the heels of the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. And if anything could have stopped the progress of the church in its tracks, I think it would be two people dropping dead in church on Sunday morning (laughs) under the judging hand of God. But it didn't. It didn't. The church kept moving. The church kept growing. The fire kept burning. However, and at the same time, what's also true is the opposition was still just as strong. That as the church continued to grow and mature and to spread, the ruling Jewish religious establishment continued to feel more and more threatened by the church, by what was happening, by the people who were turning to it. And they had, by this point in time, as we're going to see here in God's word this morning, come to a decision. And that decision was it had to stop. The fire needed to be extinguished. The wildfire needed to be blown out. They didn't want to deal with it. And what we're also going to see here in God's word this morning is the lengths and the measures they were willing to take to do it were about to become much more severe. But here's the interesting thing. What we're going to see in God's word this morning is that the harder the church's enemies tried to blow the flame out, the further they caused that wildfire to spread. The more they tried to extinguish it, the stronger it grew. And so that's why, uh, with that in mind, what I want to show you here this morning as we work through the rest of Acts chapter 5 are three things, three failed attempts to extinguish the flame. Three attempts on behalf of those who opposed the church, those who stood against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They made three concerted attempts to blow the flame out, to to stamp the fire out, and on all three counts, they failed. Here's where they started, number one. They began in verses 17 through 25, those who opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their first attempt to extinguish the flame began with what I call a night in the slammer. A night in the slammer for the apostles of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 17, here's what the scripture says. It says, But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So they laid hands on the apostles. In this case, it's probably not just Peter and John, it's all 12 of them together, and put them in a public jail. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Those of you who are parents and Maybe even if you're not a parent, you have been on the other side of this as a child. Have you ever had the experience of sending your, one of your children to their room because they were being disobedient? And, and it, anybody had that experience besides me? You sent the child to their room, right, for disobedience. And you have done so, of course, as a good and godly parent with a thought in mind that by sending my child to their room for disobedience, what I expect them to do for the next 30 minutes is sit cross-legged on their bed very quietly and contemplate the wayward direction of their life. And resolve that by the time I come to tell them they can come out, they will have made substantive change. That they'll turn over a new leaf. Isn't that what we think sort of in the back of our minds? That this is really going to do something. But here's the experience you have. 30 minutes later, you open the door and realize they've thrown a party. All right? They've, they've constructed a fort. There's music and dancing. They're, they're serving refreshments to each other. Toys they haven't touched for years have come out of the closet en masse. You wanted to send a message, they decided to throw a party. Basically, that's what's about to happen here. Only better. 
Because well, at this point, as I said, the Jewish authorities had become so, verse 17 says, jealous of the apostles. That the only thing they could think to do, they're so frustrated at this point, they've got to throw them in jail. They've warned them once, they've warned them twice. Now they're sending them to their room, as it were, to sort of straighten themselves out. Here's what they didn't understand. You may be able to restrain God's people. You cannot restrain God's power. You may be able to restrain God's people, but you cannot restrict God's power. Verse 19, but during the night, here we go. An angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them, the 12 apostles, out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they, the twelve, entered into the temple about daybreak, first thing in the morning, and they began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would become of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they are teaching the people. Now it's hard not to love the irony of the situation here. At the very moment, the, the ruling religious Jewish high council is sequestered behind closed doors, plotting, what are we going to do with this, these guys? How are we going to deal? How can we once and for all do away with these pesky Christ followers. At the very moment they're trying to do away with them once and for all, those pesky Christ followers are right back where they were the day before, teaching and preaching the gospel as boldly as ever. They're calling anyone who will listen to surrender to Jesus. And if it took a divine intervention to get them back there, that's what God was willing to do. And that's what God did. Frankly, you would think that these ruling religious authorities would have read enough what we call Old Testament scripture to know that prison bars have never been an obstacle for God. He's sprung more inmates than anyone. And they should have known better, but they didn't. But here's the thing. The miracle, welcome as it was, compelling as it is, is not really the point of this scene. The miracle is not the, the big idea or the point of this part of the story. The real point of this part of the story is this. The flame didn't get blown out. The flame of the gospel was they tried to, and they had no success at all. Look again at what the angel told them and how they responded to it. Verse 20, chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 5, verse 20. It said, the angel said, well, verse 19, excuse me. It says, during the night, the angel of the Lord came, opened the gates of the prison, and taking the twelve out, he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. In other words, you're being released but not reassigned. We want you, the Lord wants you, the angel said, to go right back again to where you were yesterday and start doing all over again the very thing that got you thrown in here in the first place. Go, it says in verse 20. That wouldn't have been a real hard assignment to follow. They were ready for that one. But then what does it say? And this is important. It says stand. As in stand firm. Make up your mind. Resolve to reclaim your place, your literal platform in the temple and go without fear and go without apology. And then he said speak. Speak, verse 20 says, to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. What's that message? That you and I are sinners in desperate need of a savior. 
We cannot save ourselves. It's why everything about us is wrong. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Savior we need. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose triumphant from the dead three days later. Even now, he reigns over all the universe from heaven, and he is our one and only hope. Go back and tell them. Don't change the story. Don't soften it. Don't, don't, don't smooth the edges. Go tell people, wherever you are, that there is only one way to be right with God, and it's Jesus. Go. And verse 21 tells us the disciples answered, the apostles answered that assignment, no questions asked. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. The night and the slammer could not extinguish the flame. It's just a temporary setback. Any more than the second attempt that the authorities brought down brought to bear on the apostles and, and their preaching of the gospel, which is realizing, or as they were about to discover, a night in jail couldn't slow the progress of the gospel. The guys were right back there the next morning preaching. So the second thing they try to do, beginning in verse 26, is, is take them to a morning in court, to take them back into the temple, away from the part where they were preaching, back into the, the high council chambers, and put them, in essence, on trial. Verse 26 says this, after the, someone came and told them they were preaching again, verse 25 in the temple, verse 26, then the captain, that would be the captain of the temple guard, sort of the chief of police, went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back, the 12 back, without violence, for they, that's the authorities, were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them, the 12, before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's that's Jesus blood upon us now we've heard this before right we remember if we've been following along in the book of Acts when that prior warning came chapter 4 verses 16 and 17 and 18 they were preaching in the temple just on the heels of healing that lame man. Remember, Peter and John healed the lame man on their way into the temple, and there's this uproar, and they begin teaching and telling people, Jesus did it, it wasn't us. And so in chapter 4, verse 17, here's what the, the authorities did. They, they said again among themselves in private, so that this will not spread any further among the people. Let's warn them. Speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But here in chapter 5, their attitude has not changed. Their response to that instruction is no different. Verse 29, but Peter and the, the apostles answered back saying, we must obey God rather than men. And then here's what Peter did, and I love this about Peter. He does not pause for a reply. He does not sort of take a breath, let them absorb uh, sort of their conviction about obeying God. He just begins. He seizes the moment as it is given to him to just go right ahead and preach the gospel. You're going to put us on trial for the gospel? I'm going to give you the gospel. And that's immediately what he begins doing. And by now, this was Peter's habit. He was, he was really, really good at it. But verse 30, here's what he says. Look at your Bible. It says, we must obey God rather than men. For the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses. We're just telling people, remember chapter four, we can't stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Do you see what Peter did there? 
Again, in a moment, I, I envy his ability to do this. He just turned the conversation in Jesus' direction. In a moment, he seized the opportunity to make Jesus the issue and to proclaim him as the answer to the deepest need of every human heart. Did you see? In those, in two sentences, he proclaimed the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. The reason we keep coming back is he came back. He came back from the dead. And and we're here to, and and remember, he came back from the dead because (laughs) you put him to death. And even now, verse 31, God has exalted him to his right hand. What does that mean? It means we've got to answer to him. We are accountable to answer to Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Because he came, verse 31, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Sometimes I think we take too long to preach the gospel. Peter does it here in two sentences. I'm impressed by that. I'm challenged by it. Then, note, if you will, Peter takes it, he, in verse 32, he took it a step further. He preached the gospel, which I think all of us are willing, even if we struggle to do, we're all willing to do. I don't know that we're all willing to do what Peter did in verse 32. He made it very, very personal. He said, and as a result, because this is what Christ has done. He's, he's lived and died and rose from the dead, exalted on high, and we are here speaking on his behalf as those who have trusted in him. What Peter then goes on to say in verse 32 is that as such gang, you ruling religious leaders, there is an eternally significant difference between us and you. We are not the same as you are. And this is what he says. Look again at verse 32. We are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And what's he saying? He's saying he's given us the Holy Spirit and not given him to you. You are not like us, he said. We are different from one another. Here's what he was saying. We belong to God and you don't. Because why? Because you have refused to surrender to Jesus. And while it's probably difficult to overstate how offensive that would have been, keeping in mind he is talking to the religious big shots of the land, doesn't mean it wasn't true because it was. Peter was laying it all out in no uncertain terms. He was saying, guys, listen, there's only two kinds of people here this morning. And if he were here, he would say the very same thing. Those who've surrendered to Jesus Christ and those who have not. And therefore, those who belong to God and those who do not. Those who are headed to heaven and those who are not. There's only two kinds of people then, now, or at any point in time. That's it. That's the bottom line. From that, I I get a couple of big takeaways. Let me just throw them out for you. Just sort of ponder in your heart as I've tried to do in mine. First, as Christians, I think there's a challenge here. For those of us who do know Christ, be a little less hesitant, a little more deliberate in sharing the gospel with others. About speaking the truth of Jesus Christ and turning conversations toward him. And I know that's not easy for me or anyone else. To to just swiftly, as Peter did here, turn a conversation toward Jesus to seize the opportunity when it comes along. But I think the challenge here is to do it. To make Jesus the issue when the opportunity presents itself. To let others know what? How much he loves them. That he has died for them. That he is the answer to all that stuff in their life that just doesn't make any sense. To their sin. It's a reminder, it's a challenge to call others to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. 
And of course, for those of you here this morning, and there may be some who don't yet know Jesus Christ, who've not yet trusted Jesus Christ, the challenge here is to do it. Because again, if Peter was here, he'd say the same thing. The same thing I'm saying. There's only two kinds of people here this morning, those who know Jesus and those who don't. But it's an eternally significant difference. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Believing that his death and his resurrection was for you? Because you, he, he loves you? Because you, you and I, all of us, need that gift of salvation? We have no hope apart from him? If you haven't done so yet, make today the day. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Know the hope. Leave a different person than you came through faith in Jesus. He's ready to answer. He's ready. And in the larger sort of scope of this story, simply this is another reminder. The gospel can't be stopped. The gospel will be proclaimed. The gospel will be spoken. It'll be spoken well. It'll be spoken weekly. But when it's spoken, you've got to respond. And that's why the fire continued to spread. A night in jail could not stop the spread of the gospel. A morning in court could not stop the spread of the gospel. Again, the very reason they were brought into court, the very thing they were brought to court to, to be told stop doing, Peter just goes right on and does it anyway. If you're going to give me the opportunity, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It just provided another chance to make Jesus Christ the issue. But here's the thing. Make no mistake, it came with a cost. Preaching the gospel, at least in this case, as it often does, came with a cost as the third and final attempt to extinguish the flame shows. Again, I'm going to tell you right up front, it was a failed attempt, but it was a serious one. And it is what I call on the heels of a night in the slammer and a morning in court, a trip to the woodshed. The disciples, all 12 of them, were taken, you know what I mean by that, on a trip, literally, to the woodshed. Pick it up in verse 33, we'll work our way down through the rest of the chapter. Now, when they heard this, no surprise here, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. In other words, all right, Peter, you're going to cross that line. We'll meet you head on right there. If you're going to speak to us this way, say these kind of things, we're not just going to tell you to be quiet. We're not going to throw you in jail. We're going to put you to death. But, verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, that's interesting, that name, because later on, if you read on in the book of Acts, you find that Gamaliel was rabbi to a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus later became the Apostle Paul. And the his historians outside of Scripture tell us that Gamaliel at that time was perhaps the most respected rabbi in the entire land of Israel. When Gamaliel spoke, everybody listened. Now, he's not a Christ follower, at least not at this point. I don't know if he became one or not. He's not a Christ follower. He's not even pro-church. But he begins to speak to seize control of the situation because he realizes it is spinning quickly out of control. Here's what Gamaliel, this great, respected man, begins to say respected, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, and he gave orders to put the men, the apostles, outside for a short time. And he said to them, the rest of the Jewish establishment, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed with him were scattered. And while there's some confusion over exactly who these two men were, we aren't entirely sure or agreed necessarily who these men were and what their re rebellions were all about. There's no question that everybody there that, that morning understood what Gamaliel was referring to. And this is the point then, next, that he used it, used their examples to make. Verse 38, so in the present case, 
I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, generally speaking, what Gamaliel said here is not a universal spiritual truth. Not every religious movement that prospers and flourishes and lasts, lasts for, for years or, or more is, is necessarily of God or blessed by him. We know that. There's all sorts of false religion in the world. Nor does, does this mean to say that something that truly is of, of God and, 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 and is inspired by him won't ever fail because we know sometimes those endeavors happen, those sorts of things happen too. But in this case, Gamaliel was dead on. Probably much more than he could have known because what's the story of Acts shown us to this point? The church couldn't be stopped. The gospel fire could not be quenched. It could not be extinguished or put out. And, 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 and what Gamaliel was saying, and he was right in this case, is if you continue to fight against these guys, you may be fighting against God. And they were. And that will not make God happy. <laughs> he will deal with that. And so when Gamaliel, here's the thing, when Gamaliel goes on in verse 40, or when it Luke goes on to tell us, in verse 40, that they took his advice, it looks like, oh, you know, everybody breathe easy for a moment. They're off the hook. Gamaliel, although he's not pro-church and pro-Christ, he's sort of dealt with the situation in a way that the apostles will be able to go out, and everybody agrees, we'll let them keep preaching and doing their thing, and we'll just see what God does with it. Until you finish the sentence. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Who's seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Or something similar to it, the story of the death of Jesus? If so, I'm sure you recall the scene where prior to his crucifixion, Jesus was beaten, and he was whipped. That's flogging. Now, it happens at different degrees and in different ways. Another biblical term for it is scourging. But in the days of, of the early church, the days of Jesus, what a flogging or a scourging involved was up to, but not more than 39 blows to the back. Best case scenario, iron rods. Worst case scenario, what you probably saw in, in the Passion or a movie like that, what was called a cat of nine tails, a braided strand, nine strands of leather embedded with bone chips and stone across the back. That's what they did to the apostles. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. The, the apostles were beginning to realize the reality of that statement. That's what they did. They take all 12 of them out into wherever they did that sort of thing. They flog them. They beat them. Then they say, now don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Serious business. The tide is sort of shifting. And I am sure, I'm only guessing, but I am sure that when the ruling religious authorities went home that night, they thought, problem solved. Now we've sent our message. Now they understand where we're coming from. The message has finally been sent. But look at verses 41 and 42. Remember, I already told you, it's a failed attempt. Here's the rest of the story. So they, that is the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council. Everybody say, rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And every day, every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus 
as the Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure even Satan saw that one coming. That kind of response. But they left that scene with that attitude. And as far as I'm concerned, there's probably a lot of questions we want to ask. There's really only one that matters. How is that possible? How is it possible to suffer like that for the name of Jesus, for preaching the Jesus, preaching Jesus, and, and to not only suffer that way, but just to keep right on going and doing what got you into that situation in the first place? How is it possible to walk into the room having been preaching, to walk out of the room singing, and oh, by the way, the only thing that happened in between is I was literally beaten within an inch of my life. How do I leave singing? How did they leave singing? How is it their little light had not been extinguished, but it was burning as brightly as ever? The simple answer is Jesus. And if we're into simple answers, we would simply say, that's the difference that Jesus makes. And that's true. But I don't think that's the whole answer here. Now follow me. I'm not saying anything weird, but I, I don't think it's enough to simply say, well, if you've got Jesus in your life, that's what's possible. Yes, it is, but there's more to it than that in this particular situation. Because I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'm, and, and I love Jesus, and I follow Jesus, and, and I do my best as you do with my life to serve Jesus, I'm not convinced that if that had happened to me, my first impulse walking out the door would have been to go home singing, How Great Thou Art. I just don't know if I could have done it. And I think there might be other believers in that situation as well. How'd they do it? I think. I believe that they were able to do that because not only had they trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, but in the time since they had done that and in their time walking with him, they had at some point along the line, each one of them become convinced that Jesus Christ is greater treasure than all of life's blessings combined. That he really is first, not in theory and not in word, but in reality. That he's worth it. That he is worth it. Why does it say? It says they were rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to suffer Shame for the name of Jesus. If, if this is because of our association with him, okay, then they said, we're good with it. That's fine. And this is not the last time they would suffer for the name of Christ. And while today we suffer less than they do, and, and we may not be necessarily where some of us may not be where they were in, their terms of, in terms of the ability to, to praise Jesus in those kind of storms, I still think there's a takeaway no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, from this for each one of us. When we are criticized and marginalized and ostracized because of Christ, we can all follow their example, which is simply at least not to do what they didn't do, which is to walk out screaming and yelling and arguing and complaining about how hard the world is and how bad people are and, and all those dirty, rotten enemies. We all know they're dirty, rotten enemies. If they're doing things like this to God's people, it doesn't change anything. They kept and they made Jesus the issue. They decided to go out. We will not go out complaining, lamenting, berating, criticizing, using this as an opportunity to talk about how hard it is. Maybe they did that in private moments together, but they went out rejoicing because Jesus is worth it. They believed Jesus was worth it. They didn't go out fearing their enemies. They went out praising their Savior. Even after a trip to the woodshed, their little light was still shining and would continue. They said at the beginning this morning, a single flame from a single match doesn't seem to possess a lot of power. Single flame from a single match, a, just a single little bit of fire, doesn't seem to have much power. 
It just shines a little bit, and it would seem very, very easy for even a little flame, very easy for Satan or anyone else, as the old song goes, to it out, and it's gone. doesn't seem like much. But listen, when that light is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the wind that is fanning it is the power of his Holy Spirit, wildfires still happen. When it's the gospel of Christ, fueled by the power of the Spirit, people get saved. Lives are changed, relationships are transformed, revivals still break out. It's still possible. We have the same ingredients they did. The Word and the Spirit. The Gospel and God's power. We have, and oh by the way, if you think about the early church, they had less than we do. They had no influence, no connections, no elected officials in offices of position and power and influence. They had no money. Oh, by the way, this one strikes me close to home. They didn't even have a building. And in a matter of decades, they transformed the Roman Empire for Jesus Christ. They had the flame of the gospel and the power of the Spirit and surrendered hearts. How's that possible? How's that possible? It's possible because as the big idea of the message this morning says, sooner or later, one way or another, the gospel's power will always prevail. Sooner or later, one way or another, the power of the gospel will always prevail. Now, that does not mean everyone who hears it will be saved. That does not mean everywhere it's taken there will be revival. But it does mean that wherever it is taken and wherever it is spoken, those who hear it will not leave the same as they came. You may have come in here this morning not believing in Jesus Christ, but you've now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not the same. You will either receive it or you will leave rejecting it. Those of us who know Christ this morning, we will leave more convinced or less convinced of, of the truth of the gospel, of our responsibility to share it. Every time the gospel is preached, lives cannot help but be changed. The question is how? See, we look at this and go, that's amazing. It can still happen. But it takes surrendered hearts. And Father, that's all it takes. Lord, as complex and as long, as detailed as this story is, it, what I'm most struck by is its simplicity. There was a simple flame of the power of the gospel, Christ, who lived and died and rose and reigns. There was the fuel, the power of your Holy Spirit filling the sails of the, the apostles, as it were, to, to power them and empower them to move forward and and there were at the head of that church 12 men with surrendered hearts and a whole lot of other people who joined with them who felt the same way. Who said, we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. Father, I want to be like those guys because those guys were like Jesus. Father, we want to be a church that was, that was like that. Not perfect. Father, a long ways to go in so many respects, but whether we have all the resources we want or we don't, we know that in Christ and with the gospel, we have enough. Father, I pray for those seated here this morning who don't yet know Jesus, who even now maybe in their soul are fighting with what to do with him. Lord, let them surrender, submit to you, as each one of us at some point is called to do. And Father, help those of us who do know Jesus, who have trusted Jesus. Father, to be convinced that he really is greater treasure than all of life's other blessings combined, that it's worth it to speak up for the name of Christ, to call people to salvation in him.
Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that shows us what the church is meant to be, what we can be by your spirit and your power. And we pray that we leave, Lord, more convinced of these things than ever before. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.